Awesome. I uh, got back from my little vacation last week, and so my body is here, but my mind is still out on the water. So if, uh, if this does not make any sense whatsoever, forgive me, please. No, I'm just kidding. But um, uh, I'm, it's nice to be able to get away. Fourth of July weekend is the day we celebrate the greatest nation on earth being born. I think so many times we take that for granted. So many things are going on in our world now that show that we have lost sight of who we are as a nation, and so it's imperative that as the church, we are in prayer for our government, for our, for our people, uh, for the, the elections and all the things that are getting ready to transpire, because we definitely need God to reign in our nation. And, uh, and so let this not just be a time of fireworks and fun, but be a time to remember what God has done in this nation and, and what he's done for us and how um, we desperately need him to lead us once again so that we can... Uh, bring our nation back to honor and glorify him. Uh, we are in Matthew. We're continuing in our series in Matthew. We'll be briefly in Matthew 23, but for most of the time we'll be in 2 Peter chapter 3. So it's interesting. We're doing a study in Matthew, but we're going to be in Peter today. But it's going to be kind of a, a contextual thing. Uh, we're, we're going to kind of set up really next week's talk today. Um, and uh, Matthew 20, uh, 24, rather, uh, is the sermon or the teaching Jesus gives his disciples about the end of the world. Dun, 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 the end of the world. It's the end of the world as we know it, right? So, right, this is something that we have thought about for thousands of years, right? Different people groups like the Mayans and the Sumerians and all these ancient peoples have had this doomsday prediction of when the end of the world was going to come. The Mayans supposedly predicted it in 2012 as far as other uh, civilizations, and there was all this hubbub uh, about the end of the world in 2012. But if you haven't noticed, we made it. It's okay, right? We're still here. Um, and uh, so even though some of the theories about the end of the world have been put to rest, they've been proven false. Many of the predictions about when Jesus is supposed to come back have come and gone. Uh, there's still this fervor or this excitement about thinking about the end of the world. Uh, we, we talk about uh, in politics and in, in our world and on the news, we're talking about climate change and how if we don't handle climate change, that it's going to bring about the end of all civilization. You know, our Hollywood with movies and television are releasing movie after movie about the annihilation of mankind. This, this uh, week uh, or, or so, the movie Independence Day was released about an alien invasion and the destruction of mankind and how we have to band together to fight this off. But not just those type of scientific events, but there are also plenty of spiritualized or spiritual movies that they're producing television shows. We, my wife and I started watching not too long ago a series called The Messengers about these people that became angels to stop the horsemen of the apocalypse, right? The, the, this theme of the end of the world is just commonplace all over everywhere. And uh, it's not just in our Hollywood or in our main pop culture. There are actually subcultures that have been developed. This group called Doomsday Preppers, right? You, from from the poor to these super rich, some of these super rich people have dug deep holes in caves and have made like these mansions underneath the ground so that when the end of the world comes, they could ride it out in style. I mean, there, there's all different television series about this. Like, it's just crazy the amount of money people are dumping into the end. I'm thinking, if you're going to die, why, 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 you know, go to all of that? But uh, as we at just... 
in our world today, as we look outside, we look at the stars, we look at all the different astrological phenomena, the, the, the asteroids that fly by our planet at any given time, all the different solar flares, all the earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, all the different things that we see, the wars and all the skirmishes, all the, just the chaos we see everywhere. It's easy just to look at what we experience and say, you know what? We might be getting close to something. We might be getting close to what the world has been dreading or fearing for so long. And in Matthew chapter 24, in our, in our teaching today, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and again, like he has in the past, he's talking about his death and his resurrection, and even gives them a clue that the destruction of Jerusalem is coming, the destruction of the temple and all of the temple buildings is coming. And after Jesus gives this teaching, his disciples have a question for him. So in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, the scriptures record this, that later Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will all of this happen? What sign will signal your return and the what? End of the world. Right? So this is a question they were asking even back then. And when we hear this phrase, the end of the world, it automatically instills a little bit of fear and some panic. Because we've read the book of Revelation. And it's an acid trip for anyone who wants to read the Bible, right? Talking about flying creatures that look like men but have scorpion tails and all this other stuff. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And so to think that that could actually happen is kind of scary. And so when they're asking this question and we, we read this in our day, the end of the world, some fear uh, can arise in our hearts. But that phrase, the end of the world, is not really translated that well from the original Greek. In the original Greek language, the, the word there that the end of the world is translated from is the word aeon, which is where we get our word eon, which happens to be translated as a period of time or an age. So the disciples, as they're asking about the end of the world, they're not asking about the destruction of the planet. They're talking about the end of this phase, this end of this period of time that they were currently in. You have to remember that the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come and set up the kingdom. So when we think of the end of the world, we think about the destruction of the planet. But here the disciples of Christ were asking about something a little differently. They were asking Jesus about when were the promises going to be fulfilled. That God has been promising the nation of Israel since the beginning. That the Messiah would come and make all things right in the world. And here when they ask this question, they're really referring back to a passage in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 13. Daniel was a prophet of God. And in Daniel 12, 13, Daniel records this. He says, as for you, go your way until the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise again to receive the inheritance set aside for you. And this is what the nation of Israel was looking for. This is what the Jewish people were looking for. The inheritance God had promised, the eternal kingdom of the Messiah. The prophet Daniel had received a vision from the Lord. An angel came to visit him and kind of gave him what we call the revelation, the prequel to the book of Revelation. It was the first apocalyptic vision of the end times. And here uh, the disciples are asking about when this would actually take place, when God would finally dwell among his people, when he would fulfill all of the covenants and all of the promises. So at this time, as Jesus' or Jesus's disciples ask about the end, the context here 
is that they truly believed Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. So here the Son of God is standing before me. The Messiah is here. So now that the Messiah has come into the world, they were thinking the kingdom of God should be right around the corner, right? He's here. So this is about to happen. This should be happening soon, especially after his death and resurrection that he's been talking about, which Daniel also mentions. So Israel at this time was currently under Roman control. They were slaves in their own land. They were uh, under Roman control. They've been bounced around from different captivity to different captivity. They've never really truly uh, for an extended period of time experienced the freedom and blessing that God desired for the nation. So these disciples, in hearing about the destruction of Jerusalem, are thinking or wondering, how much longer do they have to wait? How much longer, Jesus? How much longer do I have to wait till you fulfill this promise? And so Jesus begins to open their eyes in his teaching in Matthew 24 about all the events that must take place before the kingdom comes and the fulfillment of his promises. And Jesus literally gives them a timetable, tells them exactly what's going to happen. And this has been, in the past, one of my favorite studies in all the Bible. Eschatology, that's a fancy Christian word that we invented to talk about the study of prophecy or the study of end times. And uh, this, this topic really kind of was the catalyst from taking me from a recreational Bible reader to a student of the word, to really get in and unpack what God has to say. Now, uh, to kind of set up you know, where I am now and, and what we'll be talking about next week. When I was a college student, when we, Tony and I were newly married, I was working at a Christian bookstore. And uh, I was uh, the head of the music and children's department there. So I had a couple people that I supervised. And one of the guys that worked uh, for me in our children's department, he happened to go to a, uh, a Christian college that was not the same as mine. I was raised Baptist in the Baptist church, and so like a good Baptist, I went to the Baptist college. That's where I went, to Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri. But he went to the other college. He went to what we call the Pentecostal college, the, the Assembly of God college. And so uh, if, if you know anything about the dynamic between Baptists and, and Pentecostals, as, as many Baptists, they reject the validity and necessity of spiritual gifts, like speaking in tongues, praying for healing, things of that nature. And uh, that's what I was taught growing up, that those things weren't necessary for today or weren't valid for today. And so to teach them or to try to practice them was not only unbiblical, but was near heresy. So th this is just the upbringing that I had. And uh, many Baptists believe, and I did, wholeheartedly that they're the only ones that know what's right. They're the only ones that know exactly what the Bible says, that they have the correct belief system. And so for many Baptists, for those that grew up Baptists, you become closed off to any other viewpoint, any other information. You just don't even want to consider it because you know what the Bible says and that, that's all that matters. And so I spent more time trying to argue with other Christians about the Bible than I did sharing God's love with those who had no faith at all. Because I, my job, my, I felt my, my goal in life was to correct everyone else's belief system. And so I was working at a Christian bookstore with a lot of people that weren't Baptist. And so I had a lot of good conversations with the people that I worked with. And, and this guy as well um, that I, I was working with. And so I, I just made it my mission to help him, you know, get saved and become a Baptist. Because his salvation was not valid going into the Pentecostal church. And, uh, and so as we were talking, we, we talked about all sorts of things. And, uh, and of course, my 
effort was to bait him into conversation so that I could uh, correct him. But uh, we got on the subject one day of end time. So I think it was back when uh, we were first into the Iraq war under President Bush. And, and if you know anything about prophecy, you know that Babylon or the city of Babylon is mentioned in the book of Revelation. And back then it was said that we were entering Iraq to rebuild Iraq. Remember that? That was kind of what we were trying to do. And it just so happens that the old city of Babylon is in Iraq. Well, in Revelation, I think it's chapter 18 through 20, Babylon is mentioned to be destroyed. So if it's destroyed, it's got to be built first. And so back then, you're kind of connecting the dots about what was going on. And so I asked him, hey, do you see this going on? And do you think that the rapture of the church could happen any day now because of what we're seeing in the Bible? And, uh, and we got talking. And then he said something to me that threw me for a loop. I had never heard of this before. I'd never even, like, even considered that this was even an option. But he said something to me that, that caught me off guard. He said, you know what? I don't believe in the rapture. And I was like, what do you, you, what? You don't believe in the rapture? Haven't you seen Left Behind? I mean, how could Kirk Cameron be wrong? Right? And just in case the first one didn't do for you, they came out with a sequel to make sure you believed in the rapture. Like, we're going up, our clothes are going to be folded, sitting on the plane, we are good to go. Right? This is just a thing. This is just common knowledge. Everyone knows about the rapture, right? Right? And so that threw me off. I was like, how could you not? Because as a Baptist, and we talked about prophecy and, and all these things, this is just something you understood to be a universal fact about the rapture. But then he opened the Bible... And started showing me scriptures I'd never read before and making arguments I'd never heard before. And all of a sudden, my belief system was in trouble because I had no answer. And I got freaked out, right? But because of my upbringing, where I came from, I was like, well, I have to be right. He's got to be wrong. I have to be right. So I got to figure this thing out. So uh, I, even though I was a music major in college, I took a, a, a class called eschatology, the study of end time events. And uh, I did that because I needed to figure out how he was wrong, how I was right, so that I could go reteach him his theology. And uh, so I took this class, and over the course of the period of this time, we, were, we were, went through all different nuances of, of the different viewpoints. I learned that there are multiple viewpoints about the end times, not just one. And uh, each one had uh, very valid arguments. And uh, our school, because we were a Baptist school, we, were, we were, uh, had a certain viewpoint that we held to. And uh, during class, I, I remember that this is being one of the most ironic periods of time in class, is they divided us up into groups, and they had us debate each other using the different viewpoints of the end-time events. And I just so happened to have been chosen to be on the team that represented my coworkers' point of view. And so I'm like, okay, I can do this, right? I, I can, I can kind of know about his point of view, and so I'm going to do that. I was chosen to be the debater, and so we got up, we debated in class, and our team won. The debate, because I was using his arguments against everyone else, and they had the same problem I did. They had never heard of it before. They didn't even know that these arguments existed, and they had no answer. And so the team that won was the team that was arguing against the official platform of the college in that realm of theology and doctrine. So I'm thinking, okay, something is not right here. Something is amiss. And so I, uh, I, I really took it to heart. I really started to study the Word of God. And uh, our professor assigned us a seven-page 
uh, term paper to be turned in at the end of the at the end of the the class. And I went up to him and I was like, you know what? I've been having this back and forth with my coworker. I really just want to study the nuts and bolts of this whole thing. Can I just turn my research into you as my term paper? And he said yes. And uh, so my seven-page paper ended up to be a 27-page paper that uh, most professors would be like, no way, throw in the trash. But he was actually so impressed with it, he asked me if he could type it up as his class notes for the next semester. And so I was like, yes, you may do that. And I was totally flattered. And I was thinking, aha, I've got it. My professor likes this. You know, it's, it, this must be golden. I'm going to go take this paper to my friend, and he's going to become a Baptist, and we're going to be all good. And this is just going to be the way it is. So I took my paper to my friend. He took it home to read it. He brought it back with a bunch of red marks on it, with arguments I'd never heard before, things I'd never seen before, and my mouth just hit the floor. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. you got to be kidding me. But I learned something through that whole process. I learned that there are many different viewpoints about prophecy, and there are many smart and intelligent people smarter than me, more educated than me, that are on opposing sides than me. I don't know at all. And no, neither do you. And when you're closed off, when you don't even consider other positions, you may miss out on the opportunity to learn something. And that's what my problem was. I didn't even let the Holy Spirit teach me because I was closed off to considering anything else. And so this has been a, a learning process for me, not just to say, well, this is what I believe and that's all I'm going to follow through with. I had to open my heart and say, okay, God, what does the Bible actually say? Not what have I been taught, what did I grow up learning and believing, what does the Bible say, what are you trying to communicate in the scripture? And let the Holy Spirit teach me, and not just hold to what I've been taught. And this is why when it comes to the Bible as Vertical Life Church, and the doctrines that we preach and we teach here, we have a philosophy, we call this the open hand, closed hand philosophy. We have some closed handed issues, that means we're not going to discuss that. If you don't believe these things, God bless you, find another church. Like, Jesus is the Son of God. He died and rose again, and there's salvation and no other name under heaven but by his name. That's not an issue. Jesus was born of a virgin. We're not going to discuss that, right? There are things that we hold to as being the truth, and if you want to debate that, we'll just gladly help you find a new place to worship. But there are some open-handed issues, some things that aren't so clear, some things we can have a conversation about, and end-time events and prophecy are one of those things, because none of that affects your salvation. It doesn't affect if you're going to go to heaven. Um, so there are things that we can have a conversation about. And so over the, the next week or so, as we unpack Matthew and Jesus is teaching about the end times, about his timetable, I don't think we're going to answer everything, nor do I think we're going to solve everything. And if you have a different position than what we present, I don't think that we're going to present anything that's going to necessarily convince you. We're just going to go look and see what does the Bible actually say. And that's it. We're going we're to do that. And I find comfort in knowing that even though some of this stuff is difficult, it's you know, really deep that you have to get into it to understand, that we're not the only ones that have a difficulty with this. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, he wrote a lot about the end time events. A lot of the scriptures we're going to look at come from Paul. And uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a disciple and a close friend of Jesus, he also wrote some things about the end times, not as much as Paul. 
But when Peter was writing about the end times, he mentions something about Paul. In first, or 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, here's what Peter says about Paul. He says, and remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. Speaking of these things in all of his letters, some of his comments are what? Hard to understand. Think about who's writing this. This is Peter, the deny me three times Peter. The one who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, was taught by Jesus, lived with Jesus. And here Peter is saying some of the things Paul has written about prophecy, about the end times, about uh, this theology are hard to understand. So if this guy who lived with Jesus had a hard time interpreting Paul, it's a good chance that we too are going to have some issues with it. So I find comfort in that. We don't have to know it all. all right? We just have to believe God is in control of it all. All right, so that's why it's important that we fall on the word of God, that God's word is the standard. We have a core value here at Vertical Life Church. It's the value of unyielding truth, which means we don't make the Bible say what we want it to say so we can live and believe how we want. We look at the Bible, and we let that determine how we live and believe. It's very vital that we fall on the word of God. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go verse by verse and looking at what God's word has to say about this issue. Now, Peter ends his comments about Paul's teaching by saying this, verse 17. He says, you already know these things, dear friends, so be on guard. Then you will not be carried away with the errors of these wicked people and lose your own secure footing. In other words, don't let someone twist the scripture. Don't let someone create an argument that sounds good fall on the word of God. It says what it says. It means what it means. And you should hold on to that. So as we look at the Bible and see what the Bible says about the end times and what's going to happen, this might challenge what you've previously been taught. It has me. My views over the years have changed. And I simply desire just to honor God by trusting in his word. Again, being raised as a Baptist, it wasn't uncommon that when we would get on the subject of end time events, that every once in a while a chart would pop up. A chart a little bit like this. Have you seen this chart? Right? If you've been in church any length of time, somebody at some point came to talk about the end of the world as we know it and presented you a chart. Right? And proceeded to describe, okay, here's how everything works. Here's how it all breaks down. Right? This is a great visual. And as we can see here at the very first thing, we see the rapture of the church and then all the other events of the revelation. This is a great work of art, but we're not going to go by charts. We're going to go by the word of God because God has said what he intends for us to know. This sequence of events is what I was taught growing up. And, and uh, it's interesting that in the day that we live now, when it comes to end time events, most of the discussions we have revolve around a singular event. It happens around the rapture, the rapture of the church. And this uh, chart here, it's actually describing a view of theology called the pre-tribulational rapture view. Say that ten times fast. Right? The pre-tribulational rapture view. And so most of the, the discussion we have is when is the rapture going to happen? This is what the church is looking for, is the rapture of the church. But it's unique to me that the disciples are looking at something different. 
Back in Matthew 24, verse 3, when they asked Jesus the question, they asked him something specific. They said, what is the signal of what? Your return and the end of the age. Right? They're looking for his return, his coming, and the end of the age. The disciples were looking for the second coming of Christ. He'd come once, he's going to die and rise again. But they're looking for him to come back to set up the kingdom of God. That's what they're looking for. So they weren't looking for the rapture of the church. They were looking for his second coming. The emphasis was different. But in the church today, we look at the rapture. We're looking for the rapture. And however we see the coming of Jesus here in the scriptures, did you know that the word rapture is nowhere to be found? There is no word rapture in all of the Bible. Matter of fact, it's a name we created to describe this event. The phrase where we get the name comes in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. And this is what many consider to be the rapture verse, the, the verse that describes this event called the rapture. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and 17, Paul says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. First, all the believers who have died will rise from their graves, and then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. This term caught up is the Greek word harparzo. And it actually means just what it says. To catch up, take by force, catch away, pluck, catch, pull, and any synonym along with that. So literally, the dead in Christ, the graves are going to open up. Everyone's worst nightmare is going to happen. Bodies are going to come out of the ground. They're going to fly up into the sky. And then those of us who are still here are going to fly up and meet Jesus in the sky and be with the Lord forever. This is what many call the rapture. So when Rome took over Christianity around 300-400 A.D., the prominent language stopped being the Greek language, which is what the scriptures were written in, and became Latin. And so the Romans, they translated the New Testament into Latin in the Bible, and they came out with a version of the Bible called the Latin Vulgate. So even though rapture is not in the Bible, they get the word by looking at the Latin translation of the Greek New Testament. And so it's important to understand that the Bible never says rapture, but it does say at some point we will be caught up to meet the Lord. We'll be caught up together with the Lord. And again, this is one of the difficult passages of Paul, and it speaks of a highly debated event that many have various opinions on. But this is supposed to be the moment the church is rescued. The church is uh, delivered from the end time events uh, that unfold on the earth. Again, the scary parts of Revelation. Now, we heard that the disciples referred to this as the end, and the Bible refers to these end time events many different ways. In uh, Daniel, he calls it the end of days. In Zechariah, he calls it the day of the Lord. Jeremiah, he calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. In the book of Joel, he calls it the day of the Lord's revenge. Not real positive terms for this period of time. So it would stand to reason we'd want to get the heck out of here before that happens. But as the debate unfolds about the end times, this is really a debate about the sequence of events. It's not about the events themselves. It's about the sequence and the order of which they happen. You saw the chart and the timetable. And so a lot of these uh, arguments or debates fall on the rapture. And there are three main views of the rapture of the church. There's the pre-trib, mid-trib, 
and post-trib rapture view, pre, mid, and post. And, and uh, there's also views of when the return of Christ comes as well, pre, mid, and post. But the pre-trib rapture view puts the rapture of the church prior to the tribulation, which is all the scary stuff in the book of Revelation. That's the easiest way to describe it. So the rapture happens, then all the scary stuff happens, and then Jesus comes back at the second coming to set up his kingdom. The mid-tribulational rapture view puts the rapture in the middle of all the scary stuff, when the Antichrist is revealed and begins to unleash his persecution in the church. The post-tribulational rapture view basically says there is no rapture, but we are caught up at the second coming when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom. And at that point, we meet and hang out with Jesus forever. And so today we're not going to look at the timeline in the scriptures of what actually happens. We're just saying this to set up next week. But one thing I want to bring out today is really this question. Why is this important at all? Why is it important? Why do I need to know this? Why do I need to think about this at all? Well, it's important because Jesus is coming back. That's why it's important. He is coming. And this present age is going to come to a close at some point in the future, which means judgment is also coming. That's important. That's sobering, and it should be something that we all take really to heart, because the Bible says everyone one day will stand before God and give an account for their life. And those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are going to walk into eternal life. And those who've chosen to go their own way will go to pay for their sins for all eternity. That's a big deal. Peter writes to the church to affirm the importance of this understanding, this keeping this concept, this idea that Christ is returning in the forefront of their mind. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, he says, This is my second letter to you, dear friends. In both of them, I've tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. He's like, you got to keep this fresh. you got to keep this at the forefront of your mind. This is so important. Verse 2, he says, I want you to remember what the holy prophets said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles, the apostles. you got to keep this fresh. You have to remember. You have to understand. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth, following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. There's another view of end time events. It's called the ah millennial view. This basically spiritualizes everything, says it's not really going to happen. It just happens kind of in a spiritual form. So Jesus really isn't going to come back. It's just this idea that because of our faith now, Jesus reigns on the earth. And so they don't believe that any of this is actually going to happen. And here Peter is saying that's a bogus view of the Bible. Verse 5, he says, They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for that day of judgment 
when the ungodly will be destroyed. Verse 8, he says, but you must not forget this one thing. When the Bible says that, you got to pay attention. He says, track with me. Stay focused. He continues. He says, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. In other words, God is not in a hurry. He is not bound by time. There's no countdown for him. But he has prepared this day. Verse 9, he says, The Lord is not really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. God has appointed a day for judgment, but God wishes nobody would end up there. He's being patient for your sake. What's that mean? Who's, who's Peter talking to? He's talking to the church who's already saved. If his will is that no one should be destroyed and he's being patient for you, he's, it means that he's waiting for you to go tell them and win them to faith in Jesus Christ. He's being patient because he wants the church to be active. He wants the church to be on mission. He wants the church to be going out into all the world, preaching the gospel, making disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So no one has to stand on that fateful day. That's why we can't forget this. That's why we should never let this slip our mind. This is why the return of Christ needs to be on the forefront of every heart and every mind if you believe in Jesus Christ because you have a mission to accomplish. There's no plan B. It's you. It's me telling the world about Jesus Christ so that all who can be saved will be saved. And think about this. God is deliberately holding off judgment to give as many people time to be saved as he can. God knows his justice, his justice nature requires him to pour out judgment on sin, but he's holding back, he's being patient because of his great love for the world. That's why we say everyone matters to God, because they do. God's love for the world is so great, he's holding off, pouring out his wrath, so that you and I, those we love, and even those we hate, those we despise, like the Orlando gunmen, terrorists, child molesters, rapists, abusers, murderers, the worst of society, those we cannot stand, he's waiting so they can be saved that they can stand up and experience his love and his grace instead of judgment. He desires that we all would have a relationship with him because everyone matters to God. Hebrews 9, 27 through 28, writer of Hebrews says, and just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes the judgment, so also Christ was offered once and for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the hope of the church. This is the hope of the world that if we place our faith and trust in Christ and we're awaiting his return, that when he comes, it will not be for judgment, but will be for everlasting life. And who is it that waits for Jesus? It's those who have turned from their sin and believe. Salvation is coming for the repentant, and judgment is coming for the unrepentant. 
And Peter is telling us, don't be fooled by false arguments. Don't become apathetic because of the delay of time, because of the wealth of time that's passed from his ascension into heaven to now the time of his return. Don't think and believe that this doesn't matter because it's vitally important to our faith. The core concept of this message today is that Jesus came at first to give dead men life, but when he returns, it's going to be to make everything right. And you will either be delivered from your sin or judged because of it. Peter continues in verse 10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire. The elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth, he's promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. See, the point of every apocalyptic vision that we've received, the reason why God has given us a glimpse into the future, to the glimpse of the end of the age, to the beginning of his eternal kingdom, is simply to invite us into a relationship with him, into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, a relationship that leads to the fulfillment of everything he's ever promised, a relationship that leads you to experience everything God has had been able to offer to everlasting life. Jesus said he came to give us life and life overflowing and abundant life. And our faith leads us to experience that in the here and now. But ultimately, it will be fulfilled in the age to come. First John 5, 19 and 20 says, We know we are children of God, that the world around us is under the control of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come. He's given us understanding so that we can know the true God, and we now live in fellowship with the true God because we have live in the fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God. He is eternal life. Fellowship with the Father comes through the Son. The Son brings us eternal life. We can have a relationship with our Heavenly Father if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that begins first by making it a choice, making a decision to declare Him as Lord with your life, to believe that He has been raised from the dead. The Bible says you will be saved. God does not want you to miss out on the opportunity to have a relationship with him, to be in fellowship with your creator, to know the living God who has nothing but good plans for you. A future filled with hope. Hope that you will triumph over the enemy and anything he can throw at you. And he sends this warning to let us know that the countdown has begun. Time for us is short. Someday soon, he is going to return. The end of the age is going to come. And the invitation for you today is to not let that opportunity pass you by. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never had that moment where you've just said, God, I am yours. Jesus, I am yours. I'm all in. Whatever that means, I am all in. Though I walk through the valley 
of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil because you are with me. You are leading me. And I know that as you lead me, I will be led to an abundant life. And as you live for Jesus, you will begin to experience the blessings he's prepared for you. The question I have for you today is what decision are you making? Are you choosing to follow your sin? Are you choosing to follow the Lord? Let's bow our heads for prayer in this place. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the men that you appointed to bring us the truth that one day you are going to come. God, in the understanding of the end of days is a sobering understanding. The judgment is going to come. But God, for us, that is not bad news. It's good news because Jesus paid it all for our sin. He gave his life so that we could live. And we don't have to endure that judgment. We don't have to endure the wrath. We don't have to fear what is to come because Jesus went through that for us. And Father, I just pray if there's someone here today, maybe they've been in church their whole life, but their heart has never really connected with that truth that Jesus is Lord. God, I pray today they would cry out to you. God, that as we sing, as we close our time here today, just remembering this truth that you have come and you are coming again, God, I pray that they would call out to you they would ask you to forgive them of their sin, God, and that they would place their hope and trust in Jesus today. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you've never gone all in with him, I just invite you in this place right now just to pray this prayer with me. Just speak this aloud right where you are. Just say, Father in heaven, I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sin. Thank you for sending Jesus to pay that for me. I believe that he is your son, that he died and that he rose again. And I'm committing today to follow him all my days. Jesus is Lord with all my heart. If you prayed that today, I just am overwhelmed with joy for you. I'm excited for you as you begin this faith journey with Jesus Christ. And our prayer for you today is that you would hold fast to your faith, that you get engaged with the faith community. If it's here, we would love to just continue to encourage you on your journey. If it's somewhere else, we just encourage you to stay connected there and surround yourself with people that will help you in your faith. Because there's nothing more rewarding, nothing more that can bring you blessing than a life lived in Jesus Christ. And one day he's going to return. And we're going to be with him forever, forever, and forever. Never to know sorrow, never to know pain, never to know sickness, never to know death. And that's his will for you, that you would have life. God, I just pray for those in this place that may be wrestling with their faith. Maybe they've been disconnected for a while. God, I pray for those that maybe have felt like they're not good enough. 
God, I pray that they would recognize that Jesus is what makes them good, that you living in them makes them all they need to be, that they could rise from this place with new confidence and new hope to know that Jesus, when he comes back, he's coming for them, not to judge, but to embrace and set free. God, empower us now through the Holy Spirit to live faithful and faith-filled lives. In Jesus' name.